The Cost of War and the Gift of Waiting. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, July 13th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we look at an attempted coup in Russia. Will the mutiny by mercenary forces erode Vladimir Putin's power and change the course of war in Europe? Then we further explore the impact on South Dakota students after the U.S. Supreme Court decision on race-based college admissions. Kevin Wooster is with us today. We'll talk about the dedication of a South Dakota bridge and the young South Dakotan who died in Vietnam. The bridge is named for him. Plus, what does it mean to live in the wait? We'll talk with the author of a book that calls for vibrant living even as you wait for the life you want. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from STPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. And I'm Lori Walsh. Construction is underway for a new safe environment for women and children in Sioux Falls. Union Gospel Mission is planning to open their family center later this year in December. And joining me now in the Kirby Family Studio, we have Union Gospel Mission Communications and Marketing Development Director, Ellie Heckel. Ellie, Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Tell people about the Union Gospel Mission and sort of its foundations and mission. This is an organization that's been around for a while. So we just celebrated 124 years wow. serving the <laughs> Sioux Falls community. And yeah. um, what an honor. What an honor to be part of an organization that has deep roots here in Sioux Falls. Um, you know, we started as a, a soup kitchen. That's what a lot of people in the community thought of when they thought of the Union Gospel Mission. And I would say from the last two years of me being here, I've seen it progress to so much more resources and strengthening of programs and things that we offer for those in need. And so the mission has been around for 124 years. We're caring for the needs of the community with compassion while sharing the hope of Jesus Christ. That's in everything we do. And gospel missions across the country look to us for programs and services because of all the things that we're doing. How far away do people come to receive services? From all over the U.S. Really? So the reality is that homelessness is a huge issue, not just in Sioux Falls, but across the country. Me personally coming from Seattle, seeing the homeless community and being raised in that environment, and then coming to the Midwest, we're still experiencing very similar issues with substance abuse, mental health, um, and then even just the food, housing, there's a lot of challenges and barriers. Our hope is that we're spreading the gospel and we're giving them that spiritual, mental, physical, and emotional support. Tell me about the new center that's under construction as we speak. Literally, (laughs) Literally as we speak. So um, right now the mission serves 48 women and children in our women's center and about 86 men in our men's center. This family center is huge for many reasons. Um, Really, the the biggest challenge that we had is we couldn't have um, male, adolescent males that were between the ages of 12 and 17. So if a mom came in right now with a 13-year-old boy and other kids, we would have to turn them away or we'd have to separate the family, which is not ideal. This family center will allow us to not have to separate families. It will allow us to not have to turn away these moms that have adolescent um, children in their home. So Mm -hmm. it's giving them a safe place to come, um, but it's also providing all the other programs and resources that are available at, at the mission. Tell me a little bit about volunteerism and how that drives not only, you know, the financial support from the community, but the people who show up and do the work to help those in need. Yeah. So the greatest part about this family housing project is right now you can adopt a room. 
So if you want to volunteer and actually adopt a room, you can sponsor a room. Your name will be on the wall or not. But you can choose to do all kinds of volunteer opportunities from painting to construction. Or if you have a gift or a talent and you want to volunteer or serve in that way to help us fill, to help us complete the Family Center, just reach out to us and we'll make it possible for you. Obviously, with you know, in addition to the Family Center, there's always serving meals you know, helping right. in our thrift store. But specifically for the Family Center, we're looking for people right now to help with construction, help us stay on track so that we can actually open in December. That's our anticipated date. Throughout your work across the country, really, you have seen things that were ineffective and you've seen things that were effective in actually solving problems. And I know it's hard to measure, you know, what is the impact of something because you're not always going to know. But what works and what doesn't work from your perspective? In addressing homelessness or just in general? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. What a great question. Um, <laughs> we just got deep real faster. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, here, here's what I would boil, boil it down to. Yeah. The reality is I'm no different than you. We all struggle with things. We all – so what I've seen is if people let go of the barriers that prevent them from getting to know each other, from building a relationship with each other – then they can be more vulnerable and they're more authentic. Mm. And so I think the biggest thing right now that I'm realizing is we need to not have our barriers up. When we come across somebody that's dealing with homelessness, mental health, or if they're dealing with something, we need to support each other. And what I found in the last two years being here is our community does a great job of supporting each other. And when there's a need, people like I feel like they run to it, whether it's donating, supporting a drive, or um, even doing care cards or something simple. It's just the amount of community support I, I want to see continue to be elevated and collaborate in, in our community. Ellie Heckel with the Union Gospel Mission in Sioux Falls. We'll put some links up to our website if people want to see some photos or learn more about the project. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, just a few weeks ago, Vladimir Putin was facing down a mutiny. A private military company, mercenaries known as the Wagner Force, turned their tanks from the front lines in Ukraine and headed to Moscow. The Russian president was momentarily nowhere to be found. Vanessa Fika is a producer on the new PBS frontline documentary, Putin's Crisis. It's a film that explores everything that led to the attempted coup from Putin's invasion of Ukraine to the greatest threat to his power yet. And Vanessa Fika joins us on the phone now. Vanessa, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. This was such an extraordinary uh, breaking news story just, uh, you know, uh, not too long ago. (laughs) I was surprised. I didn't know anything about the Wagner Force. Who are they? Right. Um, So when when this happened, um, we immediately started to look into who is the Wagner Force? Who are they? And um, what we learned is that the Wagner Force has been this tool used by Putin over the years. They are a mercenary force that have been used by Russia um, at home and abroad um, to really kind of solidify his power. But what was really interesting to us about the Wagner Force was the guy running it, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. This uh, man has been in Putin's orbit for 20 or so years. 
He started off as Putin's caterer, right, which was really surprising to us. And um, and this this man uh, aligned himself very closely to Putin over the years and was sent over to Syria, to Ukraine. And then now he is he was in Ukraine as the most formidable force for the Russian forces, because they've been really struggling in Ukraine. This war has not been going their way. And so the Wagner force was the most, the strongest and most ruthless force on the ground. Um, and so for us, and in this film, what we do is we trace who they are and all these moments in Putin's history where they pop up. And it was absolutely fascinating for us to look into that. Yeah, you heard her right. If you're listening to Vanessa, did she say caterer? Yes, this is Putin's chef, <laughs> which uh, that Correct. was astonishing to me. And one of the great things that, that you do in this uh, film is you really go back to some of the the big stories that we know about uh, Vladimir Putin and his KGB roots, the fall of the Berlin Wall. But then these other things that I had forgotten about the role of Beslan and the, the takeover of an elementary school on the first day of school, which was so incredibly heartbreaking. And then Evgeny Prigozhin's role in the 2016 election interference. Right. Tell us about that. What was, his, what was his role in meddling with the U.S. election? Right. So um, Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, he had some... An internet trolls, part of the internet research agency, this group that he put together, and they were the ones who uh, created bots, fake accounts on Facebook and Twitter, and he, him and his internet research agency ended up getting indicted by the U.S. government for their role in uh, the interference in the 2016 election. So it's absolutely fascinating to us that this gentleman, this guy, yeah. <laughs> this ruthless guy, he is not only on the ground, you know, leading fight forces and fighters, he's also, you know, meddling in foreign affairs through the Internet. Um, so it's just like one of the many stories that we highlight in the film that were just absolutely fascinating to us. And because Putin, you say, uses the Wagner force for plausible deniability in these places where they don't necessarily want to appear that they're meddling, this force gets better and better, and uh, Prigozhin gets stronger and stronger. His following is, is better. What makes him turn on Vladimir Putin? He's really getting angry about this war in Ukraine. He's very vocal about it, which is incredibly rare to survive that kind of... Um, commentary against Vladimir Putin. What happens that turns the tide for him? Right. So the war wasn't going well, right? And Russian forces weren't doing well. Wagner Group, they were having some success, right? But um, but they were still low on ammunition, not getting the support from uh, the Kremlin. Yeah. And uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, he's kind of a bombastic guy. And so he would go on social media, on Telegram, and he would post these really outlandish videos where he's just screaming at the Kremlin, denouncing them for the lack of support that, uh, that he was receiving on the ground. In some of these videos, he's showing dead bodies. I mean, it's just really gruesome stuff. But he's building up his popularity, right, at that same time. And yeah. he's becoming a force. And it's uh, so when he's kind of realized he's had enough, the Kremlin is not answering him, 
he decides, let's go and head on to Moscow. Wow. Now, these people, these men who are fighting, many of them are recruited from prison, and they are, uh, Frontline says, uh, united in brutality, war crimes, um, nothing to lose, shock troops. Tell me a little bit about his success in recruiting people from prisons and, and what kind of force he has created. Right. And as you'll see in the film, as, as the viewers um, maybe have already seen or will get the chance to see, um, Yevgeny Prigozhin was sent by Putin to go into prisons to recruit. And so Yevgeny Prigozhin, he actually served time in prison. And, and so he knows how to get these men riled up, excited about going off to Ukraine and fighting for Russia. And so there's this incredible video of him, like, surrounded by prisoners, and he's just pumping them up and telling them that they need to join the Wagner Force. Um, and so these people, you know, many of them did decide to go and fight in Ukraine, and they were at the front lines of some of the most brutal um, acts on humanity in there. There's, you know, right now they're looking into some war crimes, and a lot of it, you know, it's, it seems to be related to the Wagner group. So they're especially ruthless. Um, you know, they're not highly, um, these prisoners are not extremely highly skilled, but they are just the kind of fighters that uh, Putin wants on the front lines. Yeah. There's so much in this documentary that I just would direct listeners to watch, but um, from Boris Yeltsin standing on a tank to, you know, the idea of these tanks heading to Moscow and what it would look like to use those tanks on the Kremlin, on private citizens. There's a lot to think about in here, but I guess my question to you is what happens next? Some kind of deal mm -hmm. was cut, but this isn't over and it has great impact on the the power stability of Vladimir Putin. You're right, Lori. I mean, uh, what observers of Putin, longtime observers, have told us is that this really did enormous damage to his authority. I mean, he has done so much to project himself as the strong man over the years, right? Clamping down in his country and abroad, you know, fighting against Western powers. Um, what this mutiny showed is that a threat is out there. They're in a threat. Even a failed coup can be dangerous, as one of our interviewees says. And so it reveals that the emperor had no clothes. Um, so right now, this latest episode just shows that there's chaos. Uh, there is a lack of authority on the part of Putin. And so it leaves the potential for someone else to come up and perhaps stage their own coup. And who knows, the next time they might be successful. Mm. Well, you can watch the full Putin's Crisis documentary on Frontline's YouTube page on pbs.org on that app. And Vanessa Fica is a producer and reports that uh, Putin's Crisis film for Frontline. Vanessa, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for this work. Thanks so much, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Let's get to the conclusion of my conversation with Mike Thompson regarding the recent Supreme Court decisions that impact our lives. We're going to wrap up the series with decisions that will impact universities, students, and former students across the country. 
Mike Thompson is an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of Sioux Falls. Let's take a listen. Today we talk education to yes. very significant and much reported on yes. decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's start with Biden v. Nebraska because this is the federal student loan forgiveness program that President Biden initiated and now a setback for him right. and a win for people who thought that it was too overreaching. Tell me a little bit about this case. True, good. Um, well, the first thing I want to talk about is we've talked before about standing. Yeah. Article 3 of the Constitution says we have to have a live case or controversy or the the courts have no jurisdiction. That was a big question in this case. Um, there were, I think it was six states who sued over the, the student loan forgiveness program. The court found that at least Missouri had standing because Mohella, which is a student loan servicer, is a public corporation created by the state of Missouri. And Mohella... If the if Biden's plan was allowed to continue, Mohella stood to lose about forty-four million dollars in fees, based on the loans. So the, this court held that that was a sufficient injury to <laughs> try not to laugh <laughs> at the student loan company that won't recoup their fees. <laughs> but we can't but laugh okay. about this. Yeah. <laughs> we can't laugh about standing. So, okay, standing so is they, no laughing matter. Right, exactly. Yes. Exactly. So the court said, "Hey, that's that's enough of an injury." Uh, for us to have jurisdiction over your claims. So that was a, a big part of the opinion. This opinion is based on uh, the power of the executive uh, to deal with money. Normally, in the Constitution, that is a congressional power to do spending, collecting, uh, everything with money. But because uh, the court has, in the way past, said that Congress can delegate some of its power to the executive. Congress has delegated some student loan power to the executive. So the question is whether the Secretary of Education uh, acted without authorization, without statutory authorization to impose this plan. Okay, so back to my little joke about standing. <laughs> standing <laughs> is no laughing matter, but brings up the case we talked about the last time we talked, which was the 303 creative case. There was no victim. There was no. She hadn't really denied True. services to anyone. And the person that was listed in the case when they contacted him, it was like uh, he, he had a wife. He was not even. So to that point, my question is, there is a purpose to these cases, and often the purpose is not what you might think of as being, you know, the pure fight for justice. It's more not academic, but strategic. Help me understand how some of these things come about when really it doesn't seem like there's, you know, someone's not being harmed, but somebody wants this decided. True. Yep, true. Yeah. You can uh, you can set up a test, a test case. Okay. Uh, in that, I think that's what this was in Colorado, the okay. test case that, uh, although from a legal standpoint, the court determined that she did have standing, but yeah, uh, yeah there have been test cases set up like that. Okay. Yeah. So what concerns you about the decision in Biden? Because what I was reading was just the, in the dissent, this idea that the court is just saying this is this too big. The court is abdicating their responsibility. Is that normal rhetoric or is there something to that? 
she kind of gets into this whole idea that the whole decision they made was unconstitutional, which brings us back to this credibility of the court question. Right. Even the justices are saying things that imply they're not sure what the court <laughs> right. is up to right now. Yeah, well, uh, the, and my kids hate me for this, but uh, I wasn't surprised about the result here. Um, your students, you mean? At, well, my your children. own children oh, who okay. are still paying their loans. Oh, I see. <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were waiting very nervously for this one. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't surprised that the court went the way that it did because of the... Um, of the whenever Congress is going to delegate a power to the executive branch that they have to give clear authorization to the executive branch about here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. This statute that authorized uh, under the HEROES Act of 2003 that authorized or allegedly authorized the student loan uh, activity uh, was not clear about what the Secretary of Education could do. Now, I can see on the unconstitutional side uh, the standing argument. I, I think that uh, is pretty tenuous in this mm -hmm. case about showing harm. Now, the, the court, because the court has been, it seems like the court has tightened up the notion of standing lately. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote an opinion a couple sessions ago saying that you have to have an actual injury to have standing. Uh, and then you have uh, the, the 303 creative case where the court said that she had standing as long as she could show a credible threat to her First Amendment protection. And th there is some precedent for that also. So I think that in these last cases, you see that argument a lot that, hey, these litigants aren't, they don't fit the live case and controversy requirement. So th they shouldn't even be in here. We shouldn't even be exercising our, juris our jurisprudential authority to decide this case. Yeah. Sometimes when the president does something and you sit back and say, can he do that? The answer is no. Right. <laughs> Sometimes right. the answer is no, and right. it's a, a test of executive authority that will be checked by the Supreme Court. And that's how it's supposed yeah. to work. That is how it's supposed yeah. to work. So now it goes to Congress. Yeah. I mean, the question right. is, it's not like there can't be student loan forgiveness, but there has to be a different pathway, and that is the congressional pathway. Correct. Yep. Yep. Congress can do with this decision what it wants because it's not uh, based on a con on the Constitution at all. All right. So it's let's based on statutory interpretation. Yeah. So let's go to the Students for Fair Admission v. Harvard. This is the affirmative yeah. action case. Well, the court has never been, uh, in the last 25 years, has never been really big on, on affirmative action, on using race-based criteria uh, for admission uh, into college. So, and th this court goes, uh, the current court goes through all that precedent about what is required, what, uh, what can an affirmative action admissions program do, what can it not do, and it, it studies all that precedent, and, and it, it doesn't decide that you cannot have a race-based or a, another protected category-based approach to admissions as trying to um, increase diversity. So this is uh, a decision based on an interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment, that if, if a law is going to apply to one person, it has to apply to everybody equally. And so the Supreme Court doesn't say you can't have an affirmative action program, but it does It does pretty much say that when it, it establishes the four things that an affirmative action plan uh, would have to do. 
and I'm not. I don't think there is an affirmative action plan that could that could satisfy their four requirements. So you end up you end up with a university not being able to use race as a means by which to increase the diversity of its student body. So there is the precedent. Is this against precedent? I mean, what this sense of I guess what I'm really wondering about is this compelling interest that it oh, yeah. that there's value in having diversity in your student body and that it's not happening without an affirmative action type program. Right. And that would be a compelling interest for the university. Help me I'm f- getting, finish that thought. Yeah. 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 I'm getting goosebumps talking about uh, compelling interests because yeah. it's fascinating to me anyway. The the court when the court looks at uh, whenever a government. Uh, draws a line based on uh, a protected class, for example. Here it's race. So the government, these universities are governmental entities. They are, they are using race as a line drawer to get people benefits and to keep benefits from people. Whenever it does that and the court says, okay, we're going to apply this strict scrutiny test to that governmental line drawing. And strict scrutiny requires the government to show a compelling interest for the line drawing and that where they drew the line is narrowly tailored to achieving that interest. So this court recognizes that back in Gruder versus Bollinger, that uh, that's when the court recognized that diversity, student body diversity, is a compelling interest. Then the question becomes, if it's a compelling interest, how do you narrowly tailor your admissions program? If race is a criterion, how do you measure if that interest is being satisfied? That test has been around a long time. It's going to be around a long time, and it's around in this case, too. This court says that while diversity might be a compelling interest, you cannot adequately establish it for judicial review, meaning the, the courts have no way to measure whether you're increasing diversity and whether that increase in diversity is of benefit, essentially. Like economically or, I mean, it's not intrinsic full stop. It's right. you have to show somehow that that diversity is measurable. <laughs> right. Not just be at the number of people in the student body. It can't just be that. No, it can't just what be else? That. What are the four criteria? Well, let, okay, that, I'll yeah, tell you. I'll show tell you. Tell me okay. more about that. So you can, uh, the, the court looked at both these admissions programs and uh, came to four things that, that one would have to have. So uh, the first one is the admissions program has to have focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race. It cannot employ race in a negative manner, which means the use of race in the admissions process cannot harm a different race. It has. It can't involve, of course, racial stereotyping, and it must have a meaningful end point. When is it going to end? And and these admissions programs failed those four. The court did say that the university could consider how how race or an app could consider an applicant's discussion of how race affects the applicant's life, so long as that discussion is concretely tied to a quality of character or unique ability. Tell me what you've overcome yeah. in an essay. As, yeah, exactly. So if there are limited, there are 2,000 slots, and you want so many students from different races because you've decided there's intrinsic value in that that maybe you can even measure by design somebody's left out. 
Right. Nobody could ever have a program where they say, we're going to use race to make sure we have diversity because of number two on right. that list is what I'm hearing. Right. Like maybe the others you could kind of swing, but number two is a deal breaker right. because exactly. the student who didn't get in because a black student got in can say, this harmed me. Right. I it, didn't get it, in because my slot was given to somebody else based on race. Right. It applied to me in a negative manner. It applied to me in a negative manner. Yes. All right. Yes. The carve out for the military academy. Yeah. What's up with that? <laughs> well, <laughs> There's the, an exception in the decision to military academies. Why? Because the court has always had a hands-off attitude toward the military. The okay. the Fifth Amendment, I think, is the is the basis for that. There is there are exceptions in that amendment for the military, and I think na uh, notions of national security would allow a naval uh, a naval academy or Air Force academy or whatever academy to do its admission standards in a different way. All right. Implications? Far-reaching? I think so, yeah. Does it affect South Dakota schools? Race had better not be a consideration at all. Even, even if you're going to allow an applicant to write an essay based on how race has effect, how racial considerations have affected them, there better be a clear document path that if they were admitted that race had no part to play in that. It can be that, well, the, the character that has resulted from their hardships is something the university desires, yeah. but it can't be based on race at all. To me, it's an important distinction because I teach at a private university. The Equal Protection Clause applies only to public universities. So USF, theoretically, we could try to have an affirmative action admissions policy but there are congressional statutes that would likely prevent us from doing that. If you say our plan is to have more indigenous students because we are South Dakota schools and we know statistically how many Native Americans we have in this state and we're not seeing that represented in our graduating class or even in our freshman admissions, we want to take action on that. You got to stay away from that? No, because, and this is weird, and we've mentioned this before with regard to ICWA, indigenousness is not a race, not a racial category. It's a political affiliation, according to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we could do that, and, not, and, and that program would not be based on race. But if you say we want more black students... That would be based on race. The Equal Protection Clause wouldn't care because we're a private university, but there are congressional statutes that would apply to that, most likely. After the break, Kevin Wooster goes to the dedication of a bridge in South Dakota and remembers a former classmate who died in Vietnam. Stay tuned for that. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, today, Kevin Wooster brings us the story of a bridge but more importantly, he brings us the story of the lost life behind the dedication of that bridge. And Kevin is with me now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Kevin, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, Laurie, and uh, good to be here, and it's always my honor to talk about Sam. This is an emotional story. Sam Jorgensen was someone that you had, uh, had contact with. He's a Chamberlain High School kid. Yeah, and... You know, as I touch on in the blog, uh, he, he, it what surprised me when I looked back and found out that he was only two years older uh, than I am by age. He was three years ahead in class, uh, but, uh, but he always seemed older, and part of it is it 
she was big guy, especially in <laughs> early on, you know, the kids that get big early. And, uh, <laughs> and he had uh, a big motorcycle, a big Harley-Davidson hog, 1949 Harley, when all the rest of us were dreaming and trying to buy and eventually buying Honda 50s and Honda 90s and <laughs> Honda 150s. And he was riding around in this big hog. And as I, you know, there just weren't very many of those around then. 1968, in, in, yes. <laughs> in part yeah. because you had to be a, basically a mechanic to keep a Harleys running in those days, <laughs> and, and he was. Uh. And uh, so that's, uh, that's kind of who he was. He was a you know, big guy, big football player and wrestler, and, and a guy who, you know, just his size was intimidating and his demeanor was the exact opposite. I want to make sure people know what we're talking about when it comes to the Fallen Heroes Bridge yeah. Dedication Program. So you go to an event where this bridge, named after Sam, is uh, dedicated by Governor Christy Nome. What was that event like, and how does this fit into the whole program in its entirety? Well, it was so nice, and they, they started these, uh, as Governor Nome pointed out, and, and uh, refreshed our, all of our memories that day at the Chamberlain Community Center, downtown, the old Chamberlain City Hall. That's the city hall when I was growing up and transformed into this community center. It was a very nice gathering and had all kinds of, you know, pictures of Sam and things yeah. out of his life, and his family was there, and the governor was there, and uh, it's this program begun in 2019 to name these bridges, to dedicate these bridges across South Dakota to fallen heroes, people that had died or gone missing in action in service to the nation. And uh, Sam's was the one, one of the six that uh, were selected this year. And so this was a dedication of the bridge, signs that will go on the bridge south of Pakwana, which is, a, as I point out, a road that I'm sure he rode on his Harley hmm. a number of times. And... Uh, as the governor said, when people drive across that bridge, ride across that bridge, they'll see Sam's name and hopefully remember him and remember what he sacrificed. So. He was the first kid that you knew, the first young man that you yeah. knew, who was killed in action in Vietnam. How did that impact you and your friends and the community? I think there was a distance between us and the war, this place so far away that we really didn't understand. And uh, Sam was a cousin of one of my really good friends, Ted Goldhammer. And Ted was, when Sam died, uh, February 14th, 1970, in action, in a battle, uh, courageously, um, got a bronze star and a couple of Purple Hearts. He was wounded once, continued to fight. He was a tank commander and gunner uh, and knocked out some some machine gun bunkers and and ended up continuing to fight and probably wounded finally wounded so badly again that he was uh, evacuated and and uh, died in a surgical hospital um, but but Ted Valentine's Day if you can imagine that for broken hearts and and Ted uh, called him Sammy quite a few guys that knew him all called him Sammy and the words Ted spoke to me were Sammy died over there and with that, with those words, which stuck with me, and I think if you go to anybody who, who knew people in Vietnam and finally somebody they knew, you know, because in a small town, Sam and I weren't close friends, but we were very friendly. He was friendly with everybody. And you know, everybody knows everybody pretty well. And when Sam 
uh, died when Teddy told me that, um, I think that changed everything, and it brought the war home. And I think that was that was happening across small towns, big towns, cities, everywhere across the country, and had been, and continued to. When, oh yeah, this is what war is. People we knew die, and uh, anybody can die. For the people who are too young to remember, you talk in this piece about your draft number and the lottery drawing. What was that like? What, how did you find out that number? Tell us, especially the younger people who have no memory of this. It was the strangest thing, you know, because prior to that, we'd had draft boards, and they were given a great deal of latitude, and there was some criticism that black soldiers, native soldiers, there was a higher induction rate for them than maybe the uh, non-native or non-black, you know, white people that had more connections, maybe had more resources, and the draft, draft board sometimes maybe looked more favorably for student deferments and other deferments. And then this, they brought this up in 69, a draft lottery with a drawing, and every birth date uh, through the year went into the drawing. And I remember ours on July 1st, our year, uh, we were two of my friends and I, Teddy included, were born in November 51, and our draft lottery drawing was July, July 1st to 70, 1970, just a few months after Sam died, sitting there and watching these numbers be pulled out. And if I remember right, Ted's came out top 10, nine maybe, something wow. like that. So he's going. He knows it. And mine came out 348. And you sit there and watch this drawing. And by then, the war had taken on a different demeanor in this nation, a different meaning. And there were so many more questions about it by the summer of 70 that continued about what, what are we doing there and, you know, what's going on. Uh, I think that by then, a lot of people who didn't have to go didn't go. And I was one of those people. Um, and I touched on that and how over yeah. the years when you think about Sam dying and you think how lucky you were, you think, was, sh should I have done something? Should I have done something differently? And I think, you know, that's just one of the things you think about. I'm very glad. I got to go on, you know, with my life and he didn't. I'm very glad that you were here to write about him and about this bridge dedication. It is the 36th bridge uh, named to honor South Dakotans killed in action or listed as missing in action in service as the Fallen Heroes Bridge Dedication Program. And Sam's Bridge is on Highway 50, a few miles south of Paquana. You can read Kevin Wooster's thoughts on this on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster. Kevin, I have so many thoughts to share with you, but we'll do that offline somewhere. <laughs> Thank right. you. I would Thank love you that. for this very much. I appreciate your time sure. today. Okay. All right. My pleasure. you a question. What are you waiting for, longing for? If you really want to think about it for a minute, 
Are you waiting for a promotion or a change at work, a romantic partner, the opportunity to grow your family? Whatever it is, I think we can all agree on this. Waiting kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> Melissa Vandekeet <laughs> is an author, speaker, and founder of Living in the Wait. Her book is titled Living in the Wake, How to Use the Delays in Life Differently. And she's with me with her book yes. in our Kirby family studio in Sioux Falls. Melissa, welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's pick up some sticks. Let's do it. This, I know. <laughs> this is a metaphor for you in mm -hmm. this book that uh, you begin with and close with in a really beautiful way. Um, you are very frustrated mm -hmm. at this moment where you're doing something I think all of us can relate to, which is picking up sticks after a storm, you know, in <laughs> yes. your backyard. It's not going very well for you. Mm -hmm. How did that metaphor Mm -hmm. kind of come to you as a writer mm -hmm. and as a public speaker to say this ha this is about more than just cleaning up the yard. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. And for me, it was um, probably allowing myself to kind of sit in that moment, right? Like as this is happening, as I'm picking up sticks in my yard and um, we're trying to navigate growing our family is what was happening for me in the moment. And I allowed myself to ask questions, right? And really wrestle with what I was feeling versus maybe like pushing it down or pushing it aside or forgetting. Like, you know, I mean, I think yeah. we try to do that so easily when something is difficult, especially waiting, which often can be. And I think really allowing myself to just sit with what was going on, that allowed me to have that conversation with God to shift really my thinking and be kind of asked different questions, really, which made me realize just this metaphor of these sticks and what was going on in my life and how I was trying to block myself from what was happening. And really, everything came full circle, as you mentioned at the end, um, when I really reflected on my journey and my story. And I just allowed myself again to kind of wait and pause and realize this is so much bigger than myself. I just got goosebumps because yeah. <laughs> um, of what was happening, right? Like mm -hmm. pausing to really reflect on that. And so um, I will never look at sticks the same. When I talk to people at events, they always say the same thing. They're like, I will never look at sticks the same. <laughs> so it's kind of, I guess, a, I love the fact that it's such a, a normal reminder for us, right? Yeah. Because we have trees everywhere. We have sticks everywhere that we can be reminded of just our options and how to navigate the weight differently. Yeah. So many people struggle with infertility and mm -hmm. don't talk about it. Yeah. And one of the things that it's almost hard to admit mm -hmm. is how much you want it mm -hmm. and yeah. how little you understand about why it's not happening mm -hmm. for you. Wanting mm -hmm. it is part of, talk about allowing yourself to want something mm -hmm that yeah. you have less control of than you maybe realized. Yes. And you hit on exactly what it is. That's why waiting is so hard, first of all, is it? it's a loss of control. Because if we're really being honest, we wouldn't wait, right? We would choose to bypass it. Whatever we could, we, we would do that for waiting. And in a way, we kind of can in the world today, right? Um, and so I think that's, that's realizing like that is why waiting is so difficult is because we can't control it. Because if we could, we would have done whatever we would have wanted, you know, desired already. And so I think understanding that allows you to come to a place of acceptance in a way as well to know like this is why it's so difficult, right? Like this is a, a in a sense, a normal, a natural thing to be feeling because I don't have control over this. And mm -hmm. I that's what I think is why it's so hard and why I don't like it as well. But I think when you when you come to that place of acceptance, and that's when you know how you can move forward or what you can do different. I think it clears your mind to understand like, okay, 
this is where I am. This is how I'm feeling. What are my options? Who are the people I can reach out to? What are the books I can read? I think it kind of helps. It doesn't take away that frustration, right? For you, this isn't true for everybody, but for you and in living with the weight, waiting for you is about waiting on God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why is that the place that you will wait? Why Mm -hmm. is Jesus of Nazareth the reason that you find strength Mm -hmm. in the waiting? Great question. And what I share in the book is really, it's because he waited. When I realized that that was something that he also experienced, it just it just brought a sense of relief really for me because I realized like, well, this if he has to wait, I'm going to have to wait too, right? And that brought that sense of like, um, like I said, the best word I can come up is relief. I wasn't alone, right? That Jesus waited and I can come to him with my weight. Like he, he of all people understands so much the, the magnitude of what it means to wait. And that just brought me a lot of comfort, really, is knowing that. Darn him for always... <laughs> <laughs> always teaching us something and being so relatable. But I want to figure it out myself. Yeah. <laughs> How and, and I think in the modern world, to your point, especially in, in the healthcare, and like there's 8,000 websites and mm-hmm. I can do the research and I can talk to this doctor. I can switch doctors. I can mm-hmm. talk to other people who are willing to talk to me about their experience. And yet I still yeah. have, I don't have the control that I want to. What is mm-hmm. the difference between surrendering mm-hmm. to the weight mm-hmm. and giving up? Yeah. Because I think sometimes we're afraid mm-hmm. to, to relinquish that control because we feel like if we stop striving, yep. we've quit. Yeah. And maybe quitting can be good. Yeah. But maybe waiting is better. Mm-hmm. What's the difference for you? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think for me, what really, I think what it comes down to is that acceptance part was really big, where it's like, this is where I'm at, right? Like for me, it was a family. Like you had introed in, it could be a, a spouse, a house, a family, financial freedom. It could be your health. It could be getting into college. I mean, it can be a different theme or topic. But I think when you come to the acceptance of I'm here, I don't like it. I really wish I was at my end result, my goal. So what can I do now? What what does it look like to do something in that in-between that still allows me to have peace, contentment, joy, freedom in my life while I am waiting for that? And I feel like that can come as a part of surrendering because you're saying, okay, I don't have control over that outcome because a lot of time we really don't, right? I believe, I think I do because I'm a type A person and I love that. And I Event realized, planner. You're oh, an event yes, planner. Oh, yes, exactly. I'm, so <laughs> You're paid to yes. figure out the results. Yeah, yeah, that's your job, right. you know? And so that, I think, is that surrendering of saying, okay, I don't have control over that, but I do have control over this. And I also have control who I go to in that time, right? Because it's easy, I think, to not go to God because I think we oftentimes, and myself included, blame him for this situation that he's putting me in. And really what I learned through that time and and why I think living in the weight is so important for all of us is, well, what can we do in the in-between? How can we control things? How can we make that middle matter for us, for those around us, and even for like our legacy, right? Mm -hmm. Because what we do in that time, how we navigate it really does impact us and those around us as well. It's a tough lesson, but it is a beautiful it's very tough. Lesson. I'm living in it right now, Lori. Yeah. Like, yeah. like that's where I think it's important that we realize waiting just, it's a part of life, right? Like 
it, it's not going to go away. And when we say, okay, that is a part, I think that empowers us to say, well, here's what I can do. And, and you read the book, you realize I, I shared seven truths that I think are things that we can tangibly, right? Cause we're like a, give me a to-do list kind of thing, yeah, right? you know? <laughs> and I think those yeah. are some tangible things just to remind us that almost it helps us manage and cope with that, right? Because a lot of it is our thoughts and our feelings that we're, we're experiencing in a, in a situation or circumstance. And um, for me, one that kind of ties into what I shared, the acronym was waiting, is what I shared is worship. And for me, it's, it's I almost have this automatic thing now where I'm waiting. And it's like, I pray. We're going to leave it right there. The book is called Living in the Wait, How to Use the Delays in Life. Differently, Melissa Vandekieft is our guest. I'll spell it V-A-N-D-E-K-I-E-F-T. For radio listeners, we'll put some links up on our website at sdpb.org slash news. Melissa, thank you for the work that uh, you're doing by sharing your story here, and uh, I'm sure the multitudes of people who reach out to you once they know your story as well. Thank Appreciate you, Lori. it. And we thank you for listening. 